Welcome travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. And this is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your not-so-humble guides on the quest for RPG adventures. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we are all devoted role players and storytellers at heart, and we absolutely love sharing our passion with you. On our show, we feature diverse tabletop RPG systems, demonstrating them through actual plays and breaking down the rules to provide you with tips, tools, and techniques to help you navigate them. We also love bringing the content creators behind these games into the studio to give you a peek behind the curtain with relevant and insightful interviews. Let us help you get the most out of your story, no matter what game world or system you're playing. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, diverse NPCs, and a focus on story over rules can make any campaign legendary. Now, a word from this week's sponsor. Do you have tons of extra money that you'd like to just throw at a role-playing game? <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> That's why I've had to kickstart my new game. The Gum Belt is a brand new tabletop role-playing game from Geekster Games. Alien and robot cowboys ride dinosaurs across an interstellar wild west. These planetary pioneers struggled to survive beneath the smothering rule of the greedy corporatocracy Levacor. As players, you create characters who must work together as a posse to survive the harsh wilds of the planet Hell, increasing the power of your extraordinary abilities that you possess caused by exposure to the planet's primary resource, a mysterious floating rock called Levitite. The Gum Belt is an exciting game that features robots, aliens, cowboys, dinosaurs, adventure, excitement, but no Jedi. They care not for such things. It's empty out in this wilderness. So with the dinosaurs, back us today on Kickstarter. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Tabletop Journeys, a momentous week here in Tabletop Journeys land, which I am sure that we will touch on ever so briefly here in the opening. But before we get into that, Mr. Myers, Mr. Miller, good evening. Lovely to see you on a Tuesday evening, one week before the end of our now successfully funded Kickstarter. Woo-hoo! Uh, yes, Boy. yes! I mean, it was making me sweat for a hot minute there in the middle <laughs> doldrums, I'm telling you. Yeah, I, I would I'd love to say that I had no fear ever. I was confident. Math was on my side. The projections looked good. And boy, when we had that 10-day span where we had no activity, I was like... Yeah, mm-hmm. I think we got one additional backer in those 10 days. <laughs> I, I think we only had like one or two days yeah. where there was no yeah. activity. We actually had activity all the way through. Yeah, but yeah and, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and then honestly, a great weekend for the for it, obviously, because we wound up funding, I think it was about 6.30 Sunday evening is when the, when the goal was finally hit. Thank a you, everybody show. who's back, because yeah. we so appreciate yep. it. 
Yeah, especially a, a huge shout out to our friend BD&D, uh, who owns a game store in New Zealand, of all places, that backed out our retailer tier. So uh, we're going to have to go ahead and figure out how to go ahead and ship you the 10 books that you ordered. So our books are going to be on a shelf in New Zealand. Which is pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Like that's So <laughs> allow me to be the first on air to say this. Like I've said it to a few other folks here or there, but I need to be the first on air to say this. Tabletop Journeys is now truly international, y'all. We are truly international. Yeah, I think we have to actually publish and deliver first. But we're We're gonna. (laughs) But I'm just excited that somebody in a different hemisphere is going to be able to walk into a store and pay. I think New Zealand has dollars. Whatever. I think it's a New Zealand dollar. I don't know. I might be wrong. Cougaran or whatever it might be. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They're going to be able to plop down New Zealand ducats. And walk away with a book that's got our collective name on it. And that's pretty striking for this five foot three dude from Ithaca, New York. He's (laughs) uh, he's pretty excited and like loving the fact that my first grade English teacher or language arts teacher, Mrs. Daisy Sweet, who was always all about the stories I was writing in in first and second grade, can know that I up and did something. I love that. It makes me really happy. It is the New Zealand dollar. I checked for you. Yep. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for Googling that on the fly, Glenn. I appreciate the support there. You're yes. welcome. You're welcome, <laughs> indeed. Before we go off the rails totally here talking about our Kickstarter, which we could easily talk about for the rest of the evening, I want to introduce tonight's guests. And again, they are probably one of the most well-decorated writers in the TTRPG space that we have had on the air in quite some time. Ladies and gentlemen in the audience, I'd like to introduce you to James Hake. Uh, James, welcome to Tabletop Journeys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's so great to meet the three of you. Oh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to go ahead and have you on. Thank you. Absolutely. I have so many questions for a lot of our <laughs> interviews. I do a bit of research two or three days before, and I have either physical notepads or little notepads on the computer ready to go. And I have my questions, and I sometimes I might even have to struggle with a question or two uh, just to prime the pump and get the conversation starting. Now, with you, the challenge is, where do I start? Your library is extensive, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. uh, uh, I have so many questions and things. <laughs> we'll do the best we can, and uh, please don't be afraid if when we're done with this, I ask, when can you come back? <laughs> oh, my friend, I am happy to chat about anything and everything. When it comes to tabletop games, absolutely. Before we start diving into the questions here, James, for folks that maybe don't know who you are, give them the rundown about why you're here and what you do in the tabletop role-playing game space and all that. Yeah, so I am a designer for tabletop role-playing games. D&D in particular, most of my career has had to do with D&D, whether it's been writing the Taldore campaign setting with Matthew Mercer back in 2017 or updating it uh, just a few years ago or working with Wizards of the Coast on uh, Waterdeep, Dragon Heist, uh, Critical Role Call of the Netherdeep, Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, stuff like that. Most recently, my work has been uh, enmeshed with Ghostfire Gaming, a very cool third-party publisher out of Melbourne, Australia, who is, I would say, best known for their dark fantasy setting Grim Hollow. The Valakin clans and the associated adventure Saga of the Seasons were done by me and my dear colleague Sean Merwin for them. Kickstarted last year, should be coming out early next year. And we have just kickstarted a setting that is near and dear to my heart, one that I created, an IP that I created called 
ethereal expanse. It started with an adventure, Pirates of the Ethereal Expanse, and the full setting book just kickstarted this summer. It's all about taking piracy, the classic pirates of the Caribbean ideal, and then injecting it with uh, D&D style high magic fantasy and really ratcheting it up to 11. Let's set it on the astral plane. Let's keep it as a sort of the 2D mechanics of ship sailing, make the sea itself rippling starlight and magic and all that. There's a really beautiful trailer for that. The Kickstarter is over, but you can still check it out. Trailer for that on YouTube. A musician by the name of Colin McGinnis, who has done, for example, the the theme to Critical Role's Wild Mount campaign, did this fantastic sea shanty for the, the Ethereal Expanse trailer. And you absolutely, positively have to check that out. His singing voice is gorgeous. And I guess last of all, I started a YouTube channel just about two weeks ago, where I've taken all of the knowledge of uh, all of the knowledge that I've gained over the past nearly 10 years of tabletop game design that I've done both as a indie and as a freelancer working for major publishers. And I want to take a really thoughtful, introspective, analytical view at my work and the work of other RPG design luminaries to really show you the ropes of how to be a great TTRPG designer. Awesome. Uh, I'm I'm blown away by by that. And absolutely. As a recent convert to Sean's game mastering podcast, which I've Mm. been uh, listening to over the last probably month and a half, two months. So it's just about the time we started our, our Kickstarter started ourselves um getting much more familiar with ghostfire games um mm. including and their uh, your collaboration with the dungeon dudes and and their most recent project which successfully funded in i don't know 3.2 seconds and at, uh, <laughs> at half the annual budget of 15 small countries but more power to those guys because i love their channel when four or five years ago i came to 5e very late in the process. And Mm. the Dungeon Dudes was one of the first channels that I started watching on YouTube to learn the game of 5e because as a long-term GM only, I had people asking me, we love the way you GM this game, that game. We need you to DM uh, 5e. And I'm like, I don't even know the game. And I am of a type where I got to know it before I can do it because I just believe if people entrust me with something, I want to be good at it. The people that you have talked about and you have collaborated with are the people who have taught and trained me and one of the first games that i actually played is actually one of yours which is dragon heist which remains one of my all-time favorite DD modules i'm not usually one to care for set modules as a gm but it is the one that i want to run at some point as a campaign because it is so well done and i loved it so much as a player and great stuff That is so sweet of you to say. I really adore Dragon Heist. And every time I hear stories about the way that people have taken it in their own unique direction, that exemplifies for me the reason why I love tabletop is because that adventure is so open. So there's so much room for variation and totally off the rails gonzo stuff to happen. Right. That every story I hear from people is different. And I just adore it. Yeah, that's the best thing about Dragon Heist. It's written so amazingly open that you could play the same module with more than once and not have it come out the same 
several times easily if not every time you could even take the same group of players and as long as you're like look make sure you make different choices this time it's going to be brand new and it would still be there's so much in there yeah. well i was listening to you you mentioned one thing that i hadn't come across in my research and that was your funded kickstarter from this past summer uh, with a setting for pirates of the astral sea what was its name ethereal expanse ethereal yes. expanse when your question comes up glenn you can ask him all about that let's oh i'm going to <laughs> some uh, order I, and decorum here I, I, I just wanted to know its name because that just took the my it changed one of the questions yeah. i had already planned <laughs> it won't be my first question but it i saw you trying to get yeah i saw you trying to sneak in there all right roll. Let's, let's take let's take to our fan roll dice and get our initiative rolled here uh, All right, here we go. Here we go. That's an eighteen for me. Nice. I'm rolling a, a six. Sixteen. I, right. I actually, I apologize. That's a nine, but it's still okay. still last. Bad last. Yep. Stays in the cool. same spot. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was a twenty-three. Actually, I'm I'm actually going first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> have at it. Fire away. Have at it. You, you get happen. the first question. Absolutely. <laughs> no, go, no, go ahead. See, go ahead. <laughs> I was thinking you had a question ready for. So, all right. So, James. So, when we were talking on X uh, a couple of weeks ago about this, you had mentioned your YouTube channel hmm. and that you really. It was. I don't think you had even posted any videos on there yet. You posted a couple I watched earlier today. They're fantastic. You mentioned it in the uh, the opening about what your goal is for the YouTube channel. Can we elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, why YouTube as a format? Why did you decide to go video? And where do you expect the channel to go? What are the kinds of things that you want to be diving into? This is a fantastic question because I did not make that YouTube channel on a whim. It's something that I've deliberated on doing off and on for probably five years now, because so much of the great knowledge about game design and the way the world works and how to read literature and watch movies has come from YouTube channels like there's Matt Colville's, of course, the sort of perennial GM's channel, but there's also... Sure. Game Maker's Toolkit for video game design. There's Tom Scott for uh, science across all disciplines. All sorts of channels that I have a deep affinity for that I will watch every single upload of. And now that I feel like I have a respectable amount of knowledge, something you know, legitimately to share rather than me just being some cocksure, no one being like, and this is what I think is good about game design. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I, I think I can actually take a look at the body of my career so far and take an analytical lens to other games that are out there beyond D&D into the indie space or into the the double A tier of tabletop games to to coin a phrase things like the stuff produced by monty cook games or evil hat or Ugh. paizo or any of those incredibly cool publishers that just don't have the same i don't know market dominance that D and its inheritors have the reason for that is because the, the thing that galvanized me to actually do this is when I was working on a, a yet unannounced project about this time last year. I started working on it about this time last year. I was gathering a bunch of writers and I was really bemoaning the fact that I could not find any writers that served my needs. All of my usual stable of freelancers had gone on to uh, very stable employment, or they had left the industry entirely, <laughs> right? Like my 
my dear pal and Dragon Heist co-author James Intricasso is now full-time at MCDM. My dear pal Celeste Conowich is now full-time at Kobold Press, leading Tales of the Valiant. All of these fantastic people who I would hire in an instant are, they're busy. They've got stuff to do. <laughs> and when I'm looking for the people who want to come up and take on those roles, I don't know where to find them. And I think the reason for that is there is no good centralized repository of game design knowledge. People don't know how to do this stuff. I feel remarkably lucky that I do know how to do this stuff. And half of it was gained on the job by me having the unimaginable good luck to have people like Chris Perkins mentoring me practically one-on-one in projects like Dragon Heist, which is just such a, an infinitesimally small cosmic miracle that will, will never really happen again. To, there, there were blogs back in 2013, 2014, things I was reading when I was just getting started out that have since kind of been subsumed by the tide of content out there. I think most D&D YouTube channels or RPG YouTube channels in general really focus on the art of game mastering, which is a vital art. Don't Please don't get me wrong about that. It's so important to know how to run a game because these are the people, generally speaking, who ensure that games actually get played. And there's a great deal of overlap between GMing and game designing. And that overlap is where I want it's it's a no man's land that I want to bridge. How do you go from being someone who likes game designing avocationally into something you do as a as an amateur but still paying hobby? And if that is something that you really enjoy, if that's that hustle is for you, how do you do it so that you can delve deeper into that that jungle of artistic creation and hack your way through the foliage until you reach your goal, reach your dream, whether that's indie self-publishing on a scale that'll get you onto drive through RPG or creating your own small company, a ghost fire or a kobold press, or going towards one of those golden cities within the dense jungle like Wizards of the Coast or Paizo or Monty Cook or anything like that. Regardless of what your goal is, there are design fundamentals that that knowledge is scattered. And I want to do my small part in assembling it all into a single place where people can watch and be entertained and really learn something. Yeah. So there are a couple things in there. First of all, what a brilliant answer in general. So thank you, first of all. But beyond that, I'm I'm thinking like when I was watching the videos earlier today, the channel that I could not get out of my head because I've seen, I think, everything that they put out there is CGP Grey. They touch on a lot of different topics, a lot of kind of like political theory type topics and stuff like that, largely with like stick figure animation, but they're really insightful. They did this great video about the difference between England and Ireland and Scotland and the UK and Great Britain. A fabulously informed article about how the history of the land had the same kind of pacing that your first couple of videos had. So I was like, oh, okay, Mm. I feel like I know where they're going with this. And so I'm excited to go ahead and see more. Thing one. Hmm. The other thing that I wanted to go ahead and touch on in your answer there is that we have always done shows that touch in a couple of different areas, right? We touch on we have play like player centric episodes and storyteller centric episodes, and more specifically, in probably the last 
three to six months or so, we have been doing more world building type issue uh, type shows. Mm. How to go ahead and not just be a storyteller, be a better storyteller, and what are the tools you have in that particular toolbox. But once you've decided that you're not going to run a book and you want to run your own thing, how do you make the thing that you want to run? Those episodes to a one, every single time that we put one out, our listeners go, yes, please, more of this. This is what we need. To the point that after we did five or six of them, everyone's like, okay, no, this is all great, but how do I start? Like, how do I start right. world building? And so we went back and said, ah, you need a world building 101 episode. How do you start actually making a thing? And so I'm so glad that uh, that you're feeding it into that pile also, because I, I think that's going to be something that uh, is going to be on my rotation quite a bit to go ahead and uh, get ideas on other areas that we need to touch on and, and everything like that, or put our kind of our spin on. So yeah, yeah you I know, know. I, I, I would not consider myself the greatest world builder in the land, but it's been on my mind a great deal with the with the ethereal expanse kickstarter right that adventure pirates of the ethereal expanse which came out last year uh, had a short setting guide something like i think 60 to 80 pages prefacing its first one-shot episode and basically the setting guide that we're doing now is transforming those 60 to 80 pages into a 200 some page hardcover and so i'm I, I and the the producer of this project joe rasso has been working on expanding and fully fleshing out all of that stuff so yeah i've absolutely been in the world building headspace and i'd be happy to chat about it with you awesome oh that's yeah, great. i'm super excited to hear about your youtube channel myself especially as i listen to you speak about it because anything i can pick up from you is only going to help me improve my craft because yeah. yes we design and yes we write but we're still in that. We have a very small body of work so far in <laughs> space, and we're learning a lot as we go. So yeah. it's, it'll More be fantastic to pick the brains of yourself and anybody else that you bring on episode by episode. Yeah, I, I was going to echo that. First of all, like when I two days ago when I watched your first episode, two things happened. I was about five minutes in, and I subscribed. The reason that happened that quickly is. It might be six minutes. I'm not sure the exact timestamp, so there might be a shade of hyperbole, but very early on in your conversation, I believe you made the comment that if you're a game master, you're a designer. If you're a world builder, you're a designer. If you're a player who's working on your backstory to adds to the world you're playing in, you're a designer, and you listed various touch points that designers need to have. It was very much that first episode was basically a, here's the syllabus for my channel. <laughs> and as a person who would love to be independently wealthy simply so he could not matriculate and stay in college for his entire life, because I love being in a classroom and I love learning, I watch a lot of the same channels you mentioned. I do a lot of historical deep dives specifically on the Roman Empire and neo neoclassical timeframes because I just love how that still impacts our life today. As a person who has those things, I'm all about, here's my goal. Here's what I'm here to do. And everything I'm going to touch on as we go forward is going to relate back to that. I think that was a, a brilliantly set up episode. I encourage everybody to listen to it. Thank you very much for touching on those points. And you definitely have a viewer in me and I'm all about it because I want to get better at what I do. You said it like there's so many things uh, out there that can teach different things, but there's a space that is missing our collective 40 some odd years each or 100 plus years total has filled in a lot of those gaps. But now being able to do that willfully and intentfully does take a little bit of work. And that work includes some study. It includes finding resources, 
and you are one of those resources that we're, I can just tell we're going to we're going to keep going back to. Thank you for saying so, Leonika, and th- thank you all of you. You hit it. You hit the nail on the head. That first video, which is titled "You Are a Game Designer," is the mission statement. It's my modus operandi for the entire channel, which is essentially to say, uh, whether you know it or not, often, typically, just by playing a role-playing game, by the nature of the medium, you have interfaced with game design. You have done game design. And it may be unintentional game design. It may be bad game design. It may be unconsidered game design. Or it may be very thoughtful and good and rich, and you just consider it a part of playing a character well or GMing well. And I really want to make sure that the stuff that we talk about in that channel is applicable to people who are at all phases of that design journey, whether you're uh, a GM or a player who is interested in doing uh, more hard-coded design, or if you're, if you're an indie who has already published stuff. I hope there's something that, that you can learn from this. More importantly, that you can share back with me because here's the second sort of inciting incident for creating this channel it's twitter becoming x it is the sort of burning of the library of alexandria where all of the sort of tabletop luminaries would gather and this started happening basically as early as 2020 right things have been going downhill for rpg twitter for a while now i would say especially compared to when i first joined around 2015 or so when you would see people like chris perkins and jeremy crawford and matt mercer and all of these amazing designers and personalities who would just be there and be willing to chat they would take time out of their day to answer questions and make conversation. And that creative community spawned a lot of these great designers like James Intercosso and Celeste Conowich that I was talking about earlier. And I truly think that lack of accessibility has made it a lot harder for people to gain not just the knowledge, but the confidence in their ability to design for themselves. And YouTube is notoriously a pretty rough place to have intelligent discussion, (laughs) right? The old adage, don't go to the YouTube comments. If the comments on these first two videos of mine are any metric to go by, I am blessed with the best comment section in the internet. Truly, so many people, not just blowing smoke, but legitimately engaging with the topics that I have talked about for 15 to 20 minutes in each of those videos. And I'm just blown away by the, the heightened nature of the discourse going on in those comments. So if that is something that appeals, I really hope that creative community is something that we can grow on that channel, because it's something that's been missing in my life for a long time. Cool. Beautifully said. I've been warring back and forth for which question I wanted to throw at you first. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and go with the uh, ethereal expanse question yes. because I want to make sure I get it in. I want to make sure we don't run out of time. So I love pirates, pirates of the Caribbean, swashbuckly settings. Uh, my world is called the Boiling Seas. It's a dread domain or domain of dread is what it's becoming as I work on writing it because I'm trying to actually flesh it out. But my main question is. How did you address, or did you address, ship-to-ship combat and a way to keep it entertaining for an entire party? Because what 5e has put out so far has been 
less than satisfying. I've I don't know working... if the audience is going to see the videos on this one, but the reaction, <laughs> the silent reaction was gold. <laughs> I've been working on my own, but I, I would love to, to know how you handled it if you approached it. And then if you did approach it and did it well, how I can get a copy of that fully funded Kickstarter. <laughs> Good gods, man, did we approach it. We t- we tackled it head on. I I hunted far and wide for a designer who could handle uh, creating a system as involved by necessity as this one. I'm so glad you asked about it because it is something that I am uh, immensely proud of and scared of because it is such a meaty subsystem. It's the sort of thing that people will either love. Or will hate because we care so much. I watched Master and Commander before beginning this project, along with a bunch of other naval movies. And the level of fantastic. I mean, it's it's an amazing movie, like in terms of both character study and dramatic stakes, but also of naval combat like and accuracy accuracy yes yes and i have family members who are naval history aficionados who are lifelong sailors themselves who were in the marines were all that stuff and so i turned to them and i turned to the historical sources and i turned to filmic sources as well right because rpgs by necessity have to be this mix of simulationism but also of just narrative simplicity and taking this corpus of research i sought out a New Zealandish designer who I believe is living in the the UK now named Sam Mannell. And the reason I looked for him was because in an early issue of MCDM's Arcadia, he created an, an aerial dogfighting combat system called Aces High. And I was like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing when it comes to creating new genre-specific combat subsystems for 5e. And I gave him this corpus of research, and I was like, Sam, let's check in. I want you to make the most... What's the word I'm looking for here? Let's just cut to the chase. I want you to make the best naval combat system you can. Make it as detailed as you can. Streamline it where you must. I, I want it to be fantastic, and I want people to both feel the cinematic nature of films, but also the gritty tactics and powerless fear that you feel when you are on board a two-masted sailing ship. And everything from the weather gauge to crossing the T to broadsides and all that is in Sam's system. It, it was actually too complex at the start. We did have to streamline it down a little bit. and But ultimately, I still think the thing we've produced in that game is almost too complex for a 5e subsystem i think you could make a hell of a board game out of what we put in there but people who really like crunchy naval combat will be very interested to see what we have in ethereal expanse there is a hyper simplified version as well and almost narrative narrativized version of naval combat in there as well for people who really care more about the feel of combat on the open sea than say necessarily the sort of master and commander version right there's the master and commander version and there's the pirates of the caribbean version right you gave us both so that's great 
Exactly. Exactly. I'm usually very hesitant to give people both because I think most of the time that indicates a sort of lack of confidence in the quality of your design. But tries to be too many things. Ultimately, I felt that 5e being what it is, I, I really wanted people to have both just because of how proud I am of Sam's work on that really in-depth system. And also how looking at it myself came to the conclusion that I would love to play this a handful of times, but speaking as the type of gamer I am, who really values narrative and tactics on a sort of 50-50 or 60-40 narratives to tactics split, there would be times in the running of this pretty expansive adventure that I would really just want to cut to the chase. So I think you can pick and choose one or the other, use it all the way through. I think depending on the dramatic stakes there will be groups who will just use one or use both of them rather, depending on the circumstance. <laughs> yeah. That is something that even we have tried to wrestle with a little bit. And so I'm very interested to go ahead and see how you did. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, yeah. Well, and if, cause I'm looking for a solution, the bottom <laughs> line, I'm looking for a solution that's better than what 5e currently offers. And I've been working on designing my own, but hey, if I don't have to reinvent the wheel, man. And just the concept of pirates sailing on the astral sea is fantastic. It's like taking the Spelljammer piece, but flipping it a little bit. And yeah, I'm totally in. I would love to check out that setting. Ethereal Expanse really is my pride and joy. I love that setting. And it's such a great counterpoint to the grim darkness of Grim Hollow, which is so and twisted fairy tales and all of that. Whereas parts of the Ethereal Expanse is just all magic, all bombast, all swashbuckling adventure with a little bit of, of darkness and fear as needed to maintain the tension. The, the most important thing about that setting to me from a sort of like initial kernel of design is it was vital that this did not become space pirates. Even though the sky above you and the sea below you are all streaked with stars and galaxies, and there will be comets that shoot through the silver waves of the ether, you will not be flying through the air. You will not be maneuvering in three dimensions. You are a tall masted sailing ship on the sea with the mechanics of water and the sort of isolation of being a sailor out in the open ocean. You can get stalled in the doldrums. You can all of that. So it, it, Treasure Planet, for example, is definitely a touchstone, right? Especially aesthetically. But you are really much closer to taking Pirates of the Caribbean and ratcheting the fantasy up as high as that slider mm. will go. More Treasure Island than Treasure Planet. Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Nice. I'm totally looking forward to getting my hands on that. So we're going to go ahead and step aside to record the Patreon-exclusive bit of this episode, uh, and you'll hear a brief advertisement before we come back with our second half with James Hake. Here at Tabletop Journeys, we've leveled up our game, and we're prepared to make your next role legendary. We've just started a partnership with FanRoll Dice, and they have over 300 product options to choose from. Gemstone, metal, new liquid core dice, and so much more. Better yet, listeners to the Tabletop Journeys podcast can get 10% off on their orders when they follow the link below and use discount code PODCAST10. A portion of these purchases come back to us, and this is a great way for you to help support the show.
We are back from the Patreon-exclusive part of the episode. Uh, remember, you can always check that out at www.patreon.com slash ttjourneys. Help support the show. All right, Luanika, I think that it was your turn when we broke. I love hearing more detail about the ship-to-ship combat mechanics in so much as you've provided. This afternoon, during my break and during work, I had the pleasure of listening to Sean's interview with James Intercasso, and that topic came up in that episode. And there was a great bit of discussion about game design, and he touched on a lot of what you did, but what you gave was uh, an expansion on those details that was covered in that podcast. Very pleased to hear those things coming up with the game, the fact that you put in both types of both methodologies to play allows storytellers like us to really do what fits for the genre, what fits for the type of episode or situation we're setting up. So we can go with the fast one if it's just this is an encounter or we can go in more detail if this is the big focus of the event that you're sitting down at the table virtually or otherwise. So I love hearing that. I guess that brings it to me and uh, my question. I couldn't ask about... Uh, a, a game design question because it's obviously on my mind and it, it's part of it is philosophy and part of it is what are your tendencies obviously as f- uh, when you're in the freelance gig you will do the jobs that you're you feel you're qualified to do to be able to work and sustain and all of those things but clearly when you are writing your basically picking your own projects and setting up your own processes what are your kind of go-tos? Like, what are the types of things that you are, you obviously the ethereal expanse and uh, the, is definitely along those lines, but what are the kinds of things you look forward to? What are you, what is your focus and where do you see much of your style of game design going? Are you more of a, I want to design the bits and widgets and, and the how-tos in a given system? Or are you more of the, facilitate a style of play kind of designer. Thank you for going so in depth with that question, because that is, that's a very insightful question. And one that I might need to think about for a little bit, because I really, my tendency, my, my toxic trait as a freelancer is to say yes to as many things as I possibly can. If it sounds cool, I'm like, yes, let's do it. And then I wind up over committing myself and burning the candle at both ends to deliver things in a timely manner. Luenica has no idea what that's like. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say when it comes to the things that excite me most about game design, they are, regardless of whether or not they're world building or narrative design or mechanical design or anything like that, the unifying trait is that they encourage other people's creativity. When talking about Dragon Heist, my goal and the thing that brings me great joy about that adventure is all of the different stories that I hear from people about the different ways that it went, right? There are so many different NPCs in Troll Skull Alley that uh, have a variety of different means of interacting with and little stories that could be peppered into the larger plot. There are so many different villains that every version of that adventure that I hear about is recognizable as dragon heist but wildly different and always very entertaining for me to hear about and very personalized to that story or to that group but to dig down into what you really truly asked what element of design speaks most to me i would say that 
the answer to that question has changed quite a bit over the past, I, I think, eight years that I've been doing this. I used to be really deeply in love with world building and the brass tacks of storytelling. And that was because at the time, more than anything, I was a GM and I was reading books and watching movies and I wanted to do that. I think my very first fantasy experience that made me fall in love with fantasy was the maps in The Hobbit. Like so many other fantasy nerds, Tolkien's maps have been an enormous inspiration to me. And I often judge the quality of a world, maybe unfairly, maybe not, uh, on the quality of its map. How inspiring is that map to me? I, I can often... <laughs> Again, maybe unfairly, look at a fantasy map and tell within 30 seconds, do I want to tell a story there? And all of that is still true. I do love all of those things now. But as I have become more and more expert in the fine-grained details of 5th edition D&D, and this answer may just be specific to, to 5th edition D&D because I have this fine-grained developmental knowledge. Uh, maybe if I designed for forged in the dark or powered by the apocalypse, I, I would revert to that foundational level for myself. And that may well be true. But, but now that I feel very confident and almost perfectionistically confident about my ability to design good 5e, if not great 5e, but good 5e, that has become where my focus is. Not necessarily in how do I make the coolest mechanics possible, but in how do I make a game that has strong, I'm going to sound pretentious here, ludonarrative harmony. How can the game mechanics effortlessly and elegantly support the kind of story that the players of this game want to tell? And that's actually why I've become such a proponent of people playing lots of different games these days. And that may sound funny for someone whose body of work is so dominated by 5th edition D&D. I, I think it's funny because 5e has this reputation, and I think a relatively well-deserved reputation, for being a highly adaptable system that comes with the flip side of 5e often being, or, or, or 5e players often being maligned as people who will never play another system. I'm begging you, please play another system, right? <laughs> the common refrain of people who are just a little sick and tired of 5e. And, and I sympathize with them because there are so many cool, unique, and extremely specific games out there that do things excellently that people will try and contort 5e into sufficiently. All, all that to say, I love it when a game's mechanics strongly support its intended narrative. I think it's quite I think it's quite exciting when people will make D&D &D do something it's not quite intended to do. I think there's something kind of magical about that. It's why it happens so much in my opinion. It's not just because the game is familiar. I think people feel very clever and dare I say game designerly when they make 5e do something that its designers did not originally intend it to do. But there are so many cool game ideas out there. It's it's a main part of my the second video on the YouTube channel, One Die Should Not Rule Them All, digging into games that use separate dice systems from the D20, right? D&D &D rolls a D20, you add something or subtract something to it, and you check it against a, a target number. There are so many games out there that do not do that. Blades in the Dark, you roll a whole bunch of D6s, and the highest result on any of the dice 
determines your success or failure. The 2012 Star Wars Fantasy Flight game uses dice that don't have numbers on them at all. They have funky, bizarre symbols that have a high learning curve, but create some really granular and narratively complex results when you are able to decipher them. All of those add such a fascinating depth of flavor to the play experience. It it would be like if the only video game you ever played was Skyrim and mods, right? I, I, I love Skyrim and mods, but... I, I would feel starved for good gameplay if I didn't also play FTL, The Binding of Isaac, Baldur's Gate, Overwatch, all, all of those things. There are things that one game taken alone, even stretched to its absolute limits, that you are depriving yourself of if you don't seek those experiences out for yourself. Well said, though. And we've done a lot of expanding into other games besides 5e this year. I I could not agree more. It's one of the main reasons why I'm so enamored and in love with the 2D20 system by Modiphius Entertainment, Mm. specifically as relating to the Star Trek Adventures role-playing game. That Specifically, that IP would never work well in a 5e-style game. And I know this because as much as I absolutely loved Last Unicorn Games, shout out to Matt Matt Coville and the work he put into that particular product, another product that I had been playing for years before I even knew who was behind the scenes on it. But I can tell you that as good as that game was, which at the time was the best Star Trek game that had been out and was better than the one that followed it, Star Trek Adventures and the 2D20 system, because it is so narrative about the way it's intentful that the GM ask the player, what's your approach to this? Then the difficulty is set. And then you're, as well as the selection of the core ability and the core discipline that feed into that to provide your chances of success. And then you're rolling for a number of successes and then all of the mechanics that go with that is just absolutely brilliant. It brings to mind, it also brings out that there's not only, it's not a binary pass or fail state system. There is that pass with, conf- with, with consequences or fail with benefits state of affairs that you find in a Power by the Apocalypse game or Burn 20 game or so many other very narrative flow games. There are ways to build in subsystems to 5e. I know you've talked about it. Sean has talked about it. James Intercasso has talked about it. We do that. We actually put that into our adventure that we built into, that we did with Splinterverse Media and because we felt that success wasn't good enough. We wanted it success or failure wasn't good enough on some of our checks we had a threshold of success so if you pass within a certain range that's just a straight pass but if you succeed by more than five or if you fail by more than five there are benefits or consequences with that situation and we really tried to build that into situations that were we want there to be a check because we want your choices and character building to matter but we also don't want this information behind a pass or fail role so you can fail anything other than maybe a, net, a natural one, and you're pretty much going to get the information. But the question is, does the monster down the road or in the field also hear you? Does Have you tipped off the bad guy that, of, about what your mission is or what have you? Our experience with all these other games and saying, pass or fail is not where it's at. There's a lack of narrative flow there, and I love the fact that's the kind of thing that you talk about, the type of thing you and your frequent collaborators are all about. That's one of the things I find is brilliant about the third-party creative space, the third and second-tier party, or the double A, I think, was what 
either Sean or James called it the other day. I didn't even know that Sean and James Intercosta said it too. I think it's just something that we've inherited from video games. I I think it's a great term. I'm going to start using it frequently and I will do my best to edit it accordingly. Adding that narrative is what the core of what Tabletop Journeys really tries to put into our content and talk about within our show as well. How do we build this community? How do we get more people gaming and make the games more fun and most importantly, more engaging? Dare I say, legendary. <laughs> <laughs> Always rebranding. That's right. Yeah. So. All right, gents. I think I'm finally up to round two of questions. So yes. I think clearly this is going to be a two-round evening. <laughs> let's let's break out the fan roll dice and see see how this shakes out. I am not going first with a four. I am not going last with a five. <laughs> well, I guess I'm going first because I rolled a sixteen again. All right. Okay, so what I originally intended to lead with is the question you're going to get now, but you introduced me to a concept I couldn't wait to dive into. You were part of Call of the Netherdeep, Mm. which I loved seeing, and your body of work is extensive. It was a toss-up between Netherdeep and Mad Mage as to which one I was going to dive into. Shout out Um, to Hannah Rose and Sadie Lowry also, who are absolute peaches. Loved having them on the show about a year ago. Call of the Netherdeep is my favorite 5e compatible book that has come out and probably, definitely last year, but probably the last two years. The adventure was fantastic. The way that it's designed and flows and has so many, again, open-ended parts that it could go to, everything from the festival in the beginning where everybody can com- compete and participate in different events, to specifically the mechanics built around the rival party. Rival system. Um, yeah. That rival system we talked about for a while. We loved that. So my question is, can you talk to us about your part in Call in the Nether Deep? And then aside from that, your favorite parts about the project and why they're the rival system. <laughs> yes, I adored Call of the Netherdeep. It's the first project that I uh, lead designed for uh, any role-playing game. Up till that, that point, lead designer I had... thing is why I'm like, I gotta ask him about this one. <laughs> yeah, and following that, it, it I've done a bunch of lead designs since then, which causes me to look back at Netherdeep with a sort of it's nostalgic and it's wonderful, and it's also like, why the hell did I do all of those things that I did while making that book? But it ultimately turned out really well. A lot of the things that I wanted for that book were realized, even if I might have realized them a little bit differently if I had the knowledge that I had today. The rival system is something that you can indirectly thank Chris Perkins for, because one of the most influential adventures when I was beginning to read published D&D material, right? When I started playing D&D in 3.5, I did not read many, if any, adventures longer than 10 pages. There were a bunch of free adventures that were on the Wizards website at the time, but they were all very short. They were all little dungeons and one-shots and what have you. There were two adventures that were very influential to me. One was The Red Hand of Doom, which I got print on demand many years later because I always have wanted to run it again in 5e. But the one that is really influential here is The Shattered City which is a one to 20 adventure path that Chris Perkins was behind for third edition. And somewhere in the midst of that adventure was a rival adventuring party that really did not get very much spotlight. They were at the focus of one level's worth of play just to harangue you for a little bit. And there was some, well, maybe you can have them show up again just to be a bit of an annoyance. And 
I looked at that and I thought, no, this is the perfect opportunity to have, you know, just put a mirror up to the party and be like, you see these guys? They're you. <laughs> They're doing the same things you're doing. And if you don't like that, then think about the consequences of your actions. Because Netherdeep, for all of its high fantasy, for all of its critical rollishness, is uh, also a, a pretty somber story. It's a story of a powerful, great warrior from the past who lost everything and is isolated from everything he has ever known. And the, the consequences of his anguish and isolation he's just got to go to therapy or else he's going to hurt everyone else around him <laughs> yeah, um, they've definitely and, driven him a little mad yeah and the, the spoilers for the end encounter of netherty but if you want to get the best ending you basically have to drag this guy to therapy in in that final boss fight and i really wanted those rivals around to be that mirror to the party to show the effects that sort of carelessly involving yourselves in the affairs of others without any sort of forethought or just that sort of frontier adventure sort of attitude. It's like, I'm going to just seek out glory and greatness. And I'm trying to phrase this properly. Uh, but ultimately, when you adventure carelessly, things start to go downhill for you personally, both internally and externally. And that is a progression that is shown in the three tiered stat blocks of those rivals who grow with you, grow along with you as you level up throughout the adventure. It was definitely a risk including them in there because it's a critical role adventure and a lot of the critical role audience loves watching D&D, but it's often a matter of debate how many of them run D&D, right? Critical Role is their main exposure to the game. And I think the sales figures for Netherdeep, which is actually all the Critical Role books that Wizards has published, both Wildmount and Netherdeep, are fairly low in Wizards standings when you compare them to things like Waterdeep or even the new Planescape books, stuff like that. And it's because they're so niche. And it's such a risk, including the immense DMing challenge of having five fully realized NPCs and their stat blocks involved in both social and combat scenes throughout the adventure. It's it's like the immense heft that Out of the Abyss starts with. They're just like, here's 12 NPCs. Blah. <laughs> it's like, whoa, my plate is way too full right now. I can't handle that. But it's a challenge that I thought was narratively suitable for that adventure. And Critical Role is known for its colorful NPCs who will join the party and play along with them. And at the end of the day, the primary goal of Call of the Netherdeep is how can we use game design to create an experience that lets you feel like you're playing a Critical Role game. This is not just a D&D game set in Exandria. This is a critical role game, and we are going to look to the touchstones of that play experience of what Matt Mercer likes to run and what the players of Critical Role like to insert into their characters. How do we make that happen at your table? And the rivals were an enormous component of that goal. So I can tell you, as a person who has never watched more than one episode of the actual play show critical role i think i've watched one and i don't know if i actually watched all of it but i have watched all of season one and two of the animated program and absolutely mm. love it oh, i good. own 
all three, though I don't own the original Taldori book, I, uh, I do own the Taldori Revised. In fact, I got the last copy that was in my local game store. Um, yeah. And when the first print run came out before it was sold out everywhere, and then four or five months later, it finally got back. So they still have a copy, but that is constantly going off the shelves in my store. I love the game, and I love kind of the the style that Matt Mercer uses, if I offer anything to the discussion, because I don't want the critters to come after me, and we have se- we have several that are uh, patrons of our show, I would say this. My issue is not with Critical Role. It is certainly not with any of the fantastic talents that are involved with, with that game and that economic behemoth. It is that it is a heavy lift to watch that many episodes of that length to feel like you need it. And what I loved about Netherdeep is... I didn't need it. And you could feel it in the very first encounter, just the way it was written, the way a DM would read it to a player or the way a player would experience it. You're going to learn this world as you play. And when Mm -hmm. I watched the animated show, I noticed that I was paid very close attention to that without having any of the history, but I knew from discourse and conversations on X and or at the time Twitter and all the other social medias that I'm involved with, I knew there was history long before the story of uh, Vox Machina picks up that was there, but I learned the world. I learned the characters as it went on. That's a hallmark of really any IP is if you can get in at any particular jump point, I'm not saying middle of the season. That's tough for and that's a heavy lift for any IP. But if you can get in at the beginning of a season or the beginning of that specific show, and you can get a feel for the world and anything that's critical to what's going on, no pun intended, you'll pick up as you go. That's we really good campaign world or world building design. It's really good show design and. Say I feel the same thing about a game book. Yeah, if I want to go ahead and use an example, it's the difference between Ahsoka and the first season of Picard. First season of Picard, you could come into and you just under you could understand what was going on. The first season of Ahsoka, if you didn't do the heavy lifting to watch the Clone Wars and watch Rebels and watch a lot of the precursor stuff, Ahsoka was very confusing if you didn't have that background. So. Mm. It's important for those who are working in existing IPs to consider that as they build their games or build their IPs up. A third way in on the Ahsoka factor and example of this particular topic, that is precisely why I have not started Ahsoka yet. I want to watch it desperately because I love Rosario Dawson. But I know, and I've heard since, that it's you're not going to get it if you didn't watch it. I know that there's so much history for that character in the previous two shows, which I have not watched, that i got to watch them first. And it's a lot, again, heavy lift to jump into that world, that story. And I love exactly like they were saying that another deep, you don't need that. It's all right there. It's, it lays it out for you. And that's, a, that's also something I noticed with Dragon Heist. You didn't need 30 years of Forgotten Realms lore to learn Waterdeep. Your characters, starting at a lower level as Dragon Heist does, you could start your character as though they were there, and then you'll fill, get things filled in, and whoever's running the game can say, yep, your character would know this guy, your character would know that guy based on your background. Or they could say, you're brand new to town, you're learning it as you go. And it allows you to learn the world as you go. The one challenge I had, because I played that game as part of Adventure League, mm-hmm. was 
begging DMs to run it at the half speed Adventure League so I could spend more time in the various sections of the book. Like I wanted, I didn't even want it half speed. I wanted it quarter speed. I wanted four adventures in every section of the book before we hit get various Adventure League milestones. And it's one of the things that I, if somebody was ever going to run it again for me, I would happily start it over. I would even probably resurrect the same character and start them over from the beginning just because I'd want to do it differently and learn things and spend some time, take a couple sessions going down different alleys or talking to different, building up the relationship when you're, when you, once you sign the deed, all of those things. Have a bottle episode where you're just walking around town putting up pamphlets for some bard show. Those are some wonderful things that you can do with stories that don't require the heavy lift, but really strong on the ability to let the game develop the way your table wants to develop it. If I had a, if I had the time, either now or back then, one thing that I would have absolutely loved to do on the DMs Guild is to create a supplement that turns all of those one sentence adventure hooks for the factions in chapter two into full single session adventures, right? Because all five of the factions, I think there's five, no, there's six because there's the core five. And then there's also the Bregandareth. All six of those factions have, I think five missions, one per like level of the adventure that will bring you to speed in the sort of periphery goings on of Waterdeep and how these factions are dealing with the ongoing gang war and the hunt for the gold and all of the the plot stuff. And it really gets you into a lot of different nooks and crannies of Waterdeep that are only seen through those faction subquests. And just because it's already a 200 something page book and uh, dungeon of the mad mage had to suck some of the page count out of dragon heist to make it to print properly all, all, all that jazz there really is just no room in that book for more than one sentence of description for each of those adventures and oh my god how i want each one of them to be fully fleshed out because this is actually <laughs> this is a part of my design philosophy that grows stronger and stronger as time goes on and it's don't make the gm do your work for you as a designer and th- this might be a bit controversial i think because a hallmark of D is taking something of a framework and then being a sub designer as a gm and customizing it to your own taste I think that's very important. I think that is emblematic of the medium of TTRPGs. But I think it is, you can say it in, in several ways. I think it's irresponsible design. Some might call it lazy design. I think more apt is just to call it incomplete design to take a whole adventure and say, here's a sentence describing this adventure you could create if you wanted to. And it's just like, if that sort of thing is core to the progression of the factions in Dragon Heist, you should not be making the GM flesh it all the way out. So if I could go back to Dragon Heist, if I if Wizards gave me 20 more pages, or if I had time to put it up on DM's Guild, make it all, that is the one thing I would go back to in that adventure. You are speaking the language of tabletop journeys because for two reasons. One, <laughs> our current Kickstarter is a book on factions where we're designing nine factions, fully fleshed out, even a how to build a factions chapter as well. And what we started doing in our last Kickstarter and we and will be part of several of our 
follow-up products is what we call adventure starters. And what and the reason why we landed on that title is originally they were going to be event, adventure prompts, but none of us felt comfortable with the three-sentence lead-in. We're like, that's not good enough. We couldn't write. I am physically incapable of writing a three-sentence adventure prompt. <laughs> I cannot do that. In right. fact, I could get it down to a paragraph with effort, but yeah, Lee Winika was hopelessly like, no, right. just can't do it. Every time I wrote one, it was like three pages and it was like, that's not going to go. So we decided to call them adventure starters where we gave the lead in, we set the scene, we set the, the scenarios and then Five we and encounters. Gave, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, then we a couple gave, of encounters and locations, yeah, a couple of encounters and locations. And then we give story prompts that say, for the mm. GMs to ask and answer either themselves or their players where they can tailor that to their table, their liking. So they can take this adventure starter and make it a political intrigue thing, or they can take this adventure starter and make it a straight up combat thing or an exploration thing. So the adventure has multiple ways to be done and we are not prescribing which way it needs to be done, but we're giving all the bells and whistles and then letting you ask the ask and answer the questions to get it over that hump. Right. That's we're we're big on like plug and play content. We're yeah, big on like they come out to be like ten pages long. Yeah. You still have some work to do, but all <laughs> the solid information is in there. Yeah. This is such an interesting topic to dive into because I, I'm so glad you brought up three sentence quest hooks because that is something that I adored about the design work that Matt Mercer and I did in Taldore and in Wild Mountain that I've continued doing in some of the setting books for Ghostfire Gaming is creating little three sentence to one paragraph adventure seeds that are tied to either a location or an NPC. And I, I want to say, because I'm known for these, is that I see no contradiction between what I just said about fleshing out the Dragon Heist hooks and incomplete design and creating adventure seeds like what you'd see in Taldore. And there's a main reason for this. The reason for this is that in Dragon Heist, those, those faction hooks are core to a type of progression in the adventure. And in the Taldore book, they are things that you could turn into an adventure to support your own campaign, but there is no overall progression in a setting book. They are, those quest hooks are there just as much to give an example of the flavor of the location or the NPC and what kind of problems they might be facing and how they might react to those problems as they are a handhold for you to start making your own adventures in that setting. Completely and there is a good. place for both because sometimes all yeah. you need is a little inspiration, mm -hmm. but sometimes you need some more guidance. Anything mm -hmm. that's core to the product, anything that's core to the plan needs to be done out in a more full and encompassing ma manner. Anything that's ancillary where yeah. you can leave choices, that's where you want to go with choices. Yep. Um, okay. mm -hmm. So my question is relatively short. It is going to basically be with Ghostfire Games, working with the amazing team that you have there, you have obviously a lot on your plate. You're working on projects that, that you're not at liberty to discuss yet, I'm sure. Is there you like anything, teasers, though. 
Yeah, we got it. Is, is like there anything you can do to tease us to say, "Hey, this is something we're looking at," or "This is something that you I, that I'm working on," or something I'm leaning into, or what have you? you can see not the red dot covered. that's appearing on my forehead. I'm so sorry, Sean. If we can get Sean on here, I'll do the same thing to him, so he uh, won't be the only one in the crosshairs. But I am working on a handful of things. I will say that I I am working on. As I told you, more things than I even want to be right now because mm-hmm. I am pathologically incapable of saying no to a cool project. So I've got stuff cooking with Ghost Fire, stuff that is a ton of fun, but that I am excited to ship off and move on to the next big thing because I've got projects starting in November. This YouTube channel continues to roll out. But what I will say is... I, these projects are not only fifth edition. This is really the start of my, not my departure from 5e because <laughs> uh, I love fifth edition. It's such a, it's such a fun game. It's a, it's D and D is so core to my love of tabletop games. But like I was saying earlier about games whose mechanics strongly support their storytelling, I am so in favor right now of uh, designing games that have their own unique story to tell that is not just adapting a game designed for dungeon exploration into sort of the high art theater of the mind storytelling. I will take that answer and stay tuned. I'm already subscribed. All I ask is as you're at liberty, let us know because I think we're all, (laughs) I I think I can collectively say we're all in. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I love it. My absolute favorite game that we've played on the show so far is a Powered by the Apocalypse game that is about mm. very, that is super specific, and the way yeah. that things get down into just developing that story and not trying to build mechanics for the rest of a giant huge world. It was powerful. It was so much fun. It was a Powered by the Apocalypse game built on the hidden story within the songs on Faith No More's album, The Real Thing. And it's called yeah. the real thing. Yeah, it's it called. Was, the it real was thing. sanctioned by the, by the band, band and everything. Yeah, yeah. approved they, by they, the band and the whole bit. Um, and we got to do. Just, we got to do an AP of it before their Kickstarter went out, yeah. like a game demo, and it was oh, phenomenal. So they just Sick. did. A, they just did another. So they now put out the next two versions. They put out Angel Dust and King for a Day Fool for a Lifetime. So I can't wait to get my hands on those. Those will be. Yeah. Those will be two. And, uh, and it's why I'm learning powered by the apocalypse right now. The game I'm ma- I'm learning to master for our brand at the moment is monster of the week by power to the by the apocalypse to bring that narrative over mm, mechanics excellent. paradigm it's a powerful game and if you love if you love faith no more on, in any way at all i highly recommend the game i think they're the second two books are still available on backer kit and you can certainly check them topic out. warning though it's set in the 90s the age of sex drugs and apathy <laughs> content warning yep. for the young yep. the emo on point i would the, say the, the three of us basically played us in the 90s it was it was awful memories yeah. we did not necessarily need but. not quite but <laughs> I, I, in the I, 90s i didn't speak to people much fair. i will say that i'm fairly glad my children didn't see that one yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> All right, so we're back from the patreon exclusive james I, I really appreciate you taking the time tonight to go ahead and and talk to us and talk to our fans where can our fans find you where can they interact with the stuff that you're doing now and specifically your youtube channel yeah you can find me at most social media sites including youtube the new channel just hit a thousand subscribers yesterday i'm Ooh. very grateful for it congratulations it's at 
James J. Hake. And if you need help spelling that last name, it's in the show notes. Uh, I am still on the site formerly known as Twitter. I am clinging to it like a door from the Titanic. If anything causes it to go down, though, I'm out like a light. I'll be on Blue Sky. But uh, yeah, I'm so grateful for you guys for having me on. I'm, I It really means a lot to me. I love this community. I love the creative community that surrounds tabletop role-playing games. And I it's... It, it, it is truly my pleasure to be able to give back to that community in any way I can. So thank you so much for having me on the show tonight. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's see what's coming up next week on the show. So the next Friday episode is going to be our horror RPGs episode in honor of Halloween. So that will be a fun time. But most importantly, next Saturday night at five o'clock eastern time the three of us are going to be doing a live show while we are in residency uh, for lack of a better term at a catacon so make sure you go ahead and tune in it'll be on our youtube channel five o'clock on saturday mm-hmm. night on november 4th make sure you tune in and check it out and then after the live show Luanique and i will be diving into karaoke so you know make sure you tune in at five and uh, we won't be going any longer than about six thirty. <laughs> Thankfully, karaoke is not broadcasted live. Just the live show at 5 o'clock is going to be broadcasted live. And we're going to be specifically talking about how does one put together games for total strangers that you may pull together at a table at a convention. So if you've got a convention coming up that you're going to be running a game at, that's the episode to listen to. So, James Hake, thanks so very much for joining us tonight on Tabletop Journeys. We really appreciate the time. And uh, the depth of the answers that you gave to our questions was fabulous. So Absolutely. Uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Of course. My pleasure. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week with uh, our horror RPG episode. Until then, have a good night. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. Join us at www.ttjourneys.com where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. You can also stay in touch by subscribing to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at TT Journeys, joining our Facebook group, Tabletop Journeys, or by sending an email directly to podcast at ttjourneys.com. Our full episodes come out every week on Friday, and every Tuesday features actual play and gameplay showcase episodes. Looking for early access? You can support the show and get episodes before everyone else at www.patreon.com forward slash TT Journeys. Check it out today and see all the awesome benefits we bring to our supporters. Lastly, if you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, or Audible, you would really appreciate it if you would like and subscribe to the podcast on that platform. Thank you for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And we bid you fair tides, friends, for legends a week.